listening to Inside DOI, a podcast dedicated to exposing municipal corruption. Produced at the Department of Investigation, the Independent Inspector General for New York City. Established in 1873, we are one of the oldest law enforcement agencies in the country. These podcasts will provide a glimpse into some of the investigations conducted by DOI and the corruption challenges New York City faces. I'm Chris Burke, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Inside DOI. We're currently working on new episodes that explore our cases and the anti-corruption work that we do. But in the meantime, we have something a little different for you today. Recently, DOI held its annual anti-corruption conference where we had speakers, panelists, and attendees from a range of law enforcement organizations meeting to discuss the challenges and innovations in anti-corruption work. We recorded the keynote discussion between DOI Commissioner Mark Peters and the Inspector General for the United States Department of Justice, Michael Horowitz, where Commissioner Peters posed questions to Horowitz about an array of topics, including how DOJ determines investigative priorities and how it has adjusted to the public's suspicion of what they're hearing from traditional news sources and the government. We hope you enjoy this meaningful exchange between two leaders in the anti-corruption community. I'm really thrilled to introduce Michael Horowitz, who is the Department of Justice's Inspector General and also my good friend. Michael was confirmed as the DOJ IG in March of 2012. And prior to that, he was a partner at Cadwallader with Kasham and Taft, where he focused on white-collar defense and internal investigations. And before that, he was a prosecutor both at Maine Justice and at the Southern District, um, and in fact ran Southern District's public corruption operations for a while and did a number of cases with DOI. He has had a very extensive career, really one of the leading careers in doing this kind of corruption work, including the last four years as DOJ's IG and being at the center of some of the most interesting things that are going on in law enforcement right now. And so I can't think of anybody better to have here to talk to us. And and the way Michael and I are going to do this is a conversation, but I'm going to let him do most of the conversing since he really has a unique perspective on a lot of this. But I can't think of anybody better to be conversing with about public corruption and where we see these things going than Michael Horowitz. So I really want to thank you for being here. Thank you. Let's just sort of start this off by, why don't you, if you can take a few seconds to sort of talk about a brief overview of your office and how you determine the priorities for the work that you and your folks are going to do. Thanks, Mark, and it's great to be here with everybody. Great turnout. So good to be here and have this discussion with you all. So my office in D.C. um, has about 460 now or so people, depending on the budget. We sort of fluctuate in there. But we're made up of uh, law enforcement agents, auditors, what we call evaluators and inspectors, and then we have another division of our lawyers who do oversight. And I'll just give you a quick background on each of them. Our largest group of employees actually are auditors, makes about 40% of our staff, and we're responsible for all the financial statement auditing at the Justice Department and all of the books and records, but we also do primarily really our programmatic audits of department programs and do that oversight. So 
We've got a wide range of experience in auditors. We have auditors in the computer space doing uh, cybersecurity related audits. We've got programmatic audits going on, now security audits, because we oversee all the Justice Department components from FBI, DEA, ATF, Marshal Service, the four law enforcement components, to the U.S. prison system. The Federal Bureau of Prisons is within the Justice Department. And then all of the other various components of the Justice Department. Department as a whole, by the way, is about 110,000 or so employees, about a $28 billion budget. Our agents make up the, or the next largest group. We have about 125 or so law enforcement agents. They have all the same powers as FBI agents and other federal law enforcement agents. They have authority to make arrests. They have authority to do search warrants. They have authority to do wiretaps, um, all the tools you would need to do um, to do oversight, and particularly given the fact that they oversee corruption allegations involving FBI agents, DEA agents, et cetera. And then we have two much smaller groups, which is our mentioned evaluations inspections division, which refer to people with public policy backgrounds, about 35 people or so in that division, um, and they're doing general oversight reports on programs, how are the BOP running some of its programs. They've, we just initiated, for example, a review on how the department and DEA are handling opioid interdiction. So they're going to be doing a report on that. And then we have what call our lawyers division, although they also have a handful of agents, law enforcement agents in their group. Again, about 35 people or so. They do many of our highest profile reviews. They're, mu they're much more reactive when we talk about what are we picking. They're largely a reactive entity. So they did the reports on, for example, when the US, firing, US attorney firings occurred. Uh, back in the 2005-06 time period, they just did the um, Fast and Furious review that we did about the gun trafficking to Mexico. They are doing the ongoing review that we are in the middle of regarding the events in last year's election. And they also handle whistleblower retaliation cases um, involving allegations made by department employees, most specifically by FBI, because we have direct authority over those retaliation cases. They also handle those. And then, of course, we have our management planning, our back office operations. So how do we decide what we're going to do um, and what cases we're going to take and, and what matters we're going to look at? Let me focus on the agent side of the house first and what we do there. Um, under department regulations, we are required to receive any non-frivolous allegation of misconduct, criminal, non-criminal, against a Justice Department employee, one exception being um, allegations against attorneys acting in their capacity as attorneys. So if there's an allegation about courtroom misconduct by an attorney, that goes to the department's Office of Professional Responsibility. I'll spare you from my discussion on why that shouldn't happen, but it does happen, and that's the way the law is set up. So anything other than that, we get. And the way it's essentially arranged is we have a right of first refusal. So all the allegations come to us, and we have special agents uh, in charge in Washington, our SACs in our field offices review those allegations, and we determine which ones we're going to take. And the ones that we don't take, we send back to the components, FBI, DEA, ATF, Marshals, Internal Affairs Bureaus, it's largely them, for them to handle. And 
basically what we're looking at taking are any allegations against high-level officials, which we call GS-15s or above, depends on the pay scale and seniority, allegation, any allegation involving criminal conduct. We will take any allegation that could involve criminal conduct and any other allegations that we see in that pile that we think requires independent review by a statutorily independent inspector general's office. And we will take those cases. We end up charging somewhere between 80 and 100 Justice Department officials each year with crimes, working with federal prosecutors. Obviously, they do the charging. We do the investigating, sometimes with state and local prosecutors, um, but usually with federal prosecutors. And we also, by the way, as an aside, have authority and often get cases involving misuse of department grants and contracts, much like you all look at recipients of that kind of funding. About seven to eight billion dollars a year goes out the door at the Justice Department of that $28 billion budget to third parties. Um, indeed, last year, one of those audits, it started as an audit, of a grant recipient eight years ago led to the conviction last year of Congressman Fatah, who was our appropriator in Congress, on racketeering charges. And he just got a 20-year jail sentence out of that case, along with many of the people in the grant organization that he had um, arranged to get the money sent to. So fair to say our agents in that division are almost always responding to allegations that come to us. Some of them come to us through the law enforcement components and others that are required to send it to us. Many of them come to us directly, whistleblowers, other concerned citizens, and they then proceed to decide which cases to take, which cases to send back. As you might guess, in a law enforcement organization, we get lots of cases involving whether it's DUIs, misuse of GOVs, other kinds of cases that we would routinely send back, and we're looking for a different kind of case that we need to actually take and handle. On the audit side, we do a mix of reactive audits. Some of them are statutorily mandated, but most often we are looking at what are the biggest issues facing the Justice Department? Where's the money going? What are the highest risk spending of funds going on out there? We're at the Justice Department. We have many largely non-monetary issues that we're dealing with. So how are they handling various anti-terrorism authorities that they've been given? How are they handling information that flows from them, et cetera? A lot of issues related to the justice system that obviously aren't driven by monetary decisions. And then our Valuation Inspections Division, much smaller, as I said, they're almost entirely proactive. Now, to be clear, we, as you might guess, get lots of letters in from members of Congress, from the public, from others, asking us to take a look at certain issues. We will consider them. We can't come close to doing everything we're asked to do. One of the challenges in this job is telling members of Congress, including chairs of your oversight committees, we're not going to do certain work, either because it would be inappropriate for us to do. We're not looking to get involved in policy disputes or political fights. That would be a sure way to undercut our independence but also because we have limited resources and we have to make hard decisions about what we can and can't do. And so, you know, for example, as I'm riding in from the airport this morning, I'm looking at my email and lo and behold, there's the story this morning out there that 
I'm about to get a letter from the president's private lawyer asking me to investigate Jim Comey for leaking information. <laughs> Not going to comment on what I will do with that letter, you know, in terms of responding when I get it. We'll have to consider it, but it will be one of many letters I've gotten as a result of some of these issues you've been reading about. So how do we decide what to do? Very carefully, is I guess how I would put it. So one of the uh, challenges, that, one of the things we've been talking about at this conference generally has been um, you know, the different techniques that have been evolving right. and the different tools that are at our disposal now that maybe weren't you know, 25 years ago when you were putting yeah, together right. uh, cases. Paper. Right, I mean, who, believe who, who me, Who uses I, paper anymore? Excuse right? me? Who uses paper Nobody anymore, uses, right? And you don't have to take tapes, you know, tapes right. now wrap them in tape and rewrap yep. them in tape and then sign it and right. re-sign it and, yep. you know, there's probably a whole, there's a whole skill set to wrapping right. those cassette tapes now that yep. I think is <laughs> probably lost forever. Is there anybody in this audience old enough to remember having to do that kind of thing? Yes, all right, I'm gonna, good. Uh, we will all be at the AARP table uh, to discuss that later. What are some of the new trends that you've seen in terms of waste and fraud and corruption that have evolved that we now all need to take count of that we didn't back in the days yeah. when we were using masking tape around uh, cassette tapes? You know, I think what has struck me over just the five years I've been the IG, and certainly talking to folks who've been in my office far longer than I have been, and the agents in particular, is how far more sophisticated wrongdoing has become by not only the third parties who are taking the money through contract grant fraud, et cetera, but frankly, the department's own employees. And obviously, we're overseeing people who are pretty sophisticated actors because they're trained, in many instances, trained law enforcement agents. But the the whole changes in how people act, the more, far more sophisticated technologies that are being used. People used to be email. You could find things on email. Well, now people don't email, right, as much. They're, they were texting. Now they're moving off to other tools. So it's part of the challenge is getting the organization prepared to look at the evidence and, and to think about what's going on there. We've set up over the last few years a whole cyber investigation unit and have invested a fair amount of money and are one of the handful of IG, federal IGs, um, that have a pretty robust program. And every time we add resources to that, it's clear we're going to have to add more resources because every time you do a case, what are you, you're grabbing a cell phone or you're getting some other piece of inf evidence from the subjects, and again, we're doing administrative cases as well as criminal, that you want to mine that data and get that data. So part of it is making sure you've got the technology to get the evidence you need to get. The other thing that I think I, I haven't talked to an IG's office that isn't struggling with the big data question, which is, how do you manage and mine big data, gather, collect, retain, mine, look at big data to find where the crimes are going on? You don't need to get pages of spreadsheets anymore from the bookkeeper. It's now online. It's sitting on a server. You need to get the data, and you need to be able to manipulate, manage, use that data to figure out where the anomalies are. We've invested a fair amount of money over the last three years in setting up a data analytics shop. We've now got it up and running. We've got, we're hiring people. That's a whole nother challenge, which is 
getting people to come work for you at far less pay than they could get elsewhere. And that we could probably also talk about for days and days and days. But it's, that isn't going to change. Pretty confident if I go to Congress and say double the salary of computer technicians, that isn't going to happen. So you have to live in the world you live in. But it's clear we've got that up and running. We have the Bureau of Prisons, as I said, as part of the Justice Department. Well, the Federal Bureau of Prisons spends over a billion dollars a year giving health care to inmates. That doesn't even account for the Marshal Service, which has to deal with health care for detainees pretrial. So the Justice Department is one of the largest providers of health care services in the federal government. And we've got over a billion dollars in healthcare spending. And it's managed at 100 plus federal institutions across the country. And it's decentralized. And first thing we're doing as part of this data collection effort is getting that data, looking for anomalies. And we've already, just by pulling the data together, throwing in a system and looking at it, we've already picked up several significant anomalies in the data. And we're created some, what appear to be some pretty good cases out of it. And that's doing a pretty unsophisticated use of this data. Um, and several of my colleagues in the federal government, as IGs are ahead of us in this effort, but many are behind us in this effort, and we're all trying to learn together to get there. And I think it's very important to be able to recognize, and we talk about this with our agents and with our auditors in particular, how much more sophisticated the crimes are and the wrongdoing is that we're seeing out there. You know, we had a Bitcoin case a couple years ago. I still can't tell you what a Bitcoin is, but it's worth a lot of money. And it grows out of the Silk Road case, which was here out in New York. You probably read about the Silk Road case. Well, a DEA agent and a Secret Service agent, and I have authority over DEA. I don't have authority over Secret Service, so the DHS OIG worked on this with us. Um, but we were the leads because it was a Justice Department case, were creating a bank account, moving bitcoins overseas to help themselves to some of the gains that were collected during that case. Well, you know, we had agents who had to learn how to find that and address that. And obviously much is now international as well. We've got cases overseas. We've got a whole variety of other sophisticated actors. Our office here in New York did the case involving an FBI agent, which you may have seen, who was involved in a huge fraud in Utah and then was involved here. He's on the counterintelligence side trying to sell information to Bangladeshis. So go figure that's going to be one of your cases, right? And they had to get in the middle of that. We have the case where a couple DEA agents were running a strip club in New Jersey. I'm not disclosing it on their security forms. And so we're seeing more and more of these kinds of cases going on that involve far more significant actors, players, sophisticated actors and players than before. And a real challenge for us is keeping up with how you get to that evidence. No, I think it's a really good point. I'm going to emphasize something you said. The idea of looking at for patterns in data has mm -hmm. become increasingly important everywhere. I mean, that I hadn't thought about it in the context of the Bureau of Prisons, but we see this a lot, particularly at HRA, which is, I forget how many billions of dollars HRA now spends on benefits. Um, 9.7. 9 point, thank you. My, the, the Inspector General for HRA, who should really be up here doing the talking, but right. so $9 billion. And one of the things that Milton, who is my um, IG for this, has done a really great job of 
is the kind of data mapping that allows us to look for anomalies. Obviously, with $9 billion being spent on how many beneficiaries, how many people get HRI benefits? So 500,000 beneficiaries. By the way, we did not set this up. I just very comfortably put him on the spot because he's that good. $9 billion, 500,000 beneficiaries. There is no way, I mean, you want to talk about going to Congress and saying, can you double my salary? How about if I go to the city council and say, could you give me another 10,000 employees? I'll join you if you come and right. for me also. Right. Actually, what we have to do is completely get them to revise the rules on forfeiture funds and then, you know. <laughs> then go take the Bitcoin. And, right, yeah. But there's no way that you can actually, using old-fashioned shoe leather detective work, supervise that. The best you can do is set up systems where you're looking for anomalies so that you can then reduce that 500,000 down to a manageable several hundred that you want to look at. And we've done that, and it's produced a bunch of cases where we've had some insiders at HRA and a bunch of outsiders stealing huge amounts of money, sometimes in the millions of dollars. We've arrested 10, 20 people at a time in some very big cases, but those got made out of exactly what yeah. you're talking about. And I think that's a really important point to make. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's critical now more than ever, I think it was always important, but because of the importance of data and the various disciplines you need to figure things out is the ability to work across professions. So in my shop, we talk a lot about how important it is to marry up our auditors with our agents and vice versa. They have completely different training and backgrounds in terms of skill sets, but both, in, in many cases now, you need both at the table. We're hiring forensic auditors. I mean, we're trying to bring those together more and more. You need the people with the cyber backgrounds to come to the table. The other thing that has been a challenge for us at the federal level, we have 73 federal IGs across many, many, many agencies, obviously at the federal level. And it is a challenge. In fact, there were, until December, when Congress passed legislation we had advocated for as an IG community, the Computer Matching Act restricted our ability to look for anomalies across agencies. So you can get grants, right? Apply for grants to DOJ, apply for grants to all the other cabinet agencies if you have a organization that can apply legitimately. And there's no way of really figuring out what kind of duplication, or it's a challenge at least, to figure out any duplication there. And one of the things we just got in December when Congress passed the IG Empowerment Act was an exemption for IGs from the Computer Matching Act. So we are looking now at ways to share data across IGs. It's still not as easy as it should be, but that's an important issue as well is the burdens on us as IGs to not be just running in our own lanes as IGs. I mean, look, there's plenty of work at the Justice Department for me and my folks to do, Labor Department, Social Security, everybody has education, health uh, and human service. We have got plenty within our lanes, but we've got to try and figure out how to cut across as well. Right. No, I think that's a really good point. One of the things that we sort of, I think, sometimes forget in New York City is because all the IGs and their staffs are all DOI employees, it's a little easier for us to do a case where suddenly, you know, the <clears throat> HRA IG and the housing IG, it's easy. They're all part of one entity. So you've got 
and I know they passed that law. So do you have now mechanisms that allow you and your fellow IGs to be talking so that you don't end up in a situation which you're looking at things that they... Right. So what we've tried to do, and on the federal level, 10 years ago, Congress created the Council of Inspectors General. I'm actually the chair of that. Um, and also, all 73 of us meet monthly to talk about the issues we see. A little like herding cats in that situation, because it's nice to say you all, everybody gets together, but everybody knows they were also appointed independent. So you grab 73 people who were told be independent and try and get them to agree to move in the same direction can be a challenge. but we all recognize the problem and so that has been a mechanism we've worked through committees there to try and do some of that but and we're picking up speed on that but that's a hard thing to do that doesn't come mm -hmm. naturally when you know for 40 years we've been developing our own in our own lanes in our own system so that can be a challenge but it's clearly something we need to do the other thing we need to do more of and this is a great event for that is bring together local, state, federal IGs, because there are many IGs throughout the country at all levels of government, and making sure we're interacting with them, and also interacting with counterparts in law enforcement that aren't in the IG community, um, and making sure when we've got a matter, and this happens here, then the NYPD sees an issue, for example, about a task force officer that's on a federal task force at the Justice Department that they know who they should be reaching out to in our office and how we're available to work with them on those kinds of cases. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna just shift gears here for a little mm -hmm. bit. One of the things that we've spent a lot of time thinking about on the local level is obviously the, our first obligation is to respond to corruption and investigate corruption and arrest people and, and pass it off to prosecutors to then do the indictments. But Increasingly, we're trying to think about how do you prevent this stuff from reoccurring right. so that we don't end up arresting you know, the same people for the right. same crime again and again. And are there things that you've found on the federal level that are particularly effective in terms of, now that we've done this case, we know there's this problem, we're gonna go arrest these people, right. how do we make sure a bunch of officers don't decide to steal Bitcoin again right. two years down the road, yep. assuming you could figure out how to steal a Bitcoin. I was going to say, right. right. There's a few steps before you get to that, right? But no, one of the things we do is to put out recommendations. Our auditors are steeped in that, right? That's what Yellow Book Auditing and is all about. It's thinking about how reform occurs, and they do an excellent job with that. We have, I think right now, about 800 open recommendations to the Justice Department. Some of them are one or two years old, which is, generally speaking, the time frame that you would want to see those starting to be closed. But some of them are not within a couple of years. Some of them are much longer. And one of the things that I've talked about with our agents is making sure they're also thinking about when they see issues, how do we make sure that we let the agency know through a formal recommendation, if need be, about a problem that we see in a structural issue, a systemic issue, structural issue that we've identified to address those issues. And we do that and we've done those because our job is to prevent and detect, not just arrest folks. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're just picking up people over and over and over again for the same offenses because the managers, the people who are responsible for managing the department aren't taking the steps they need to take. So we make sure we make the recommendations. We think about that. Um, I'll often be asking my folks about that when we see issues. 
But the other thing we've done recently, and we started this about a year ago now, maybe 18 months ago, because we had so many open recommendations, it was in, was closing in on a thousand. I told the Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, and I meet with them roughly monthly or so, depending on what you know schedules are. What we were going to start doing is every six months we were going to start publishing our open recommendations with an essentially an aging list and posting it publicly on our website. And you can see it there on our website. And told them that we would send it to the deputy's office beforehand, a month or so before we'd run it, but that we were going to post it. And every time we do that now, they're scrambling in the Justice Department mm -hmm. because the deputy's office wants them to close as many as they can. And so we've brought it down by 100 plus on the oldest recommendations, which has been a positive. The other thing that we've done, which they were not happy about either, <laughs> was when we do a misconduct, obviously if we do a criminal case it gets public and folks know about it. We started posting on our website, and again you can see these on our website, non-criminal administrative misconduct involving GS-15s or above, so high-level department employees. We anonymize it for Privacy Act purposes, so you won't see the name of the person in there, but you will see a description of their position and a description of what we found that they did. And in my view, it's important for a variety of reasons to do that. One is deterrence. Another is to let folks know in the Justice Department that high-level people are being held accountable, just like the belief is, I think, generally low-level people get held accountable, mm -hmm. but high-level managers don't. And so we did that as well. And the other consequence of that has been, that would appear to us at least, to be a much faster pace of the department responding to our findings. Mm -hmm. So it is not infrequently that we will get a call from the department that says, when are you going to post that? Because we're about to resolve the matter, and we'd like you to be able to say in there how we resolved it. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't happening before. So that's a positive as well in getting the message out. And, and that's the other thing we do. We try and get the message out as widely as we can when we find things, because people need to see what's going on, what's going on that's problematic, and put the pressure on folks to fix it. I think that's enormously important and, and in some ways mirrors the, the occasional fights I've had with people in city government who you know, want to know, why do you always have to make all this stuff public? It's because, right. well, one, that's how you get people to respond, and two, that's how you get people to have confidence that there is integrity monitoring, people are watching that, and it leads me to, I don't know how much more time we have before they're gonna, this is our, I'm told this is our last question. I'm gonna actually ask you a question that I got asked yesterday at a corruption conference at Columbia Law School. I don't think I gave a really great answer, so I'm gonna hope oh. you have a really be a much better one, and then the next time I get asked this question, um, I can steal your answer and sound smart. But, and it sort of ties into this, which is, over the last year, we've sort of had an advent of the concept of fake news and, and alternative mm -hmm. facts. And somebody asked me, well, when you issue reports and you find that XYZ governmental entity did something wrong, how do you convince people that your facts are the real facts? How do you deal mm -hmm. with the fact that people are becoming more suspect of what they're hearing from all the traditional places that we yeah. used to get facts from, including the government? And at a time when there's nothing more important than the facts, and there's yeah. really for you and your shop and for me and my shop, there's nothing more important than 
our reputations as non-political fact finders, but that when we go up and say, here's the facts, yeah. they're the facts. How do you how do you deal with that in, in what are difficult times? Yeah. It's a great question, and it goes to the core of what we do in oversight. No matter what area of oversight you're in, I mean, I have statutory independence. I have no term. My predecessor served 11 years in the job. He was a Clinton nominee, served two years under Clinton, eight years under Bush, one year under Obama. The credibility, the independent, nonpartisan stature that we have in the inspector general community is is the core. If we don't have our credibility, we don't have anything. I mean, it's it's that simple. And a few things. At the most basic level, it's making sure your processes are rigorous in making 100% certain you have every single fact right. I'm sure there would be no greater joy than one of our agencies we oversee being able to come forward and say, you got it wrong, right? Uh, this is what keeps me that, up at night exactly on a regular right. basis. And so you've got to button it down. The other thing I learned, and this was not the easiest thing, having been a prosecutor where you're supposed to aggressively pursue wrongdoing, you bring an indictment, and then there's an adversarial system that plays out in a courtroom and a jury decides. Well, one of the things that was drilled into me from day one was, in many respects, we're the fact finder, judge, and jury all in one. And one of the things you've got to be careful of is you don't need to reach to make a finding. You need to lay out all the facts, and what I found, and I, I had this struggle right away walking in, actually, because I had Fast and Furious um, sitting there for me to do when I walked in the door, a highly partisan, controversial issue. I was investigating the Attorney General the first day I got sworn in. And the challenge was I didn't have a track record. My office had a track record of strong credibility and strong independence, but I personally didn't. And one of the th ways I approached it was to do just what you mentioned is I, when I talked to folks, it was, look, I'm going to put out a report, and it turned out to be a 400-plus page report, and it's going to go into every factual detail. At the end of the day, this, uh, with this report, you can disagree with me with what you believe my conclusions are and analysis is, but there shouldn't be any dispute about the facts. And so we're going to put out the facts out there. We took time to also address what was out there in the internet and other spaces that were alternative sort of versions of things to address that and try and lay out in methodical detail with support why we reached the conclusions we reached. In many respects, to think about it like an appellate court opinion, which does the same thing right there. Judges deal with that all the time. They don't have any particular advantage in any of this, but they are given this authority and this stature and this independence, and that's the whole purpose of writing a legal opinion, right? A legal decision, if you're a judge, is to lay out and explain and describe what the facts are with support from prior cases, et cetera, for your position. This is obviously different doing a fact standpoint, but being methodical and explaining in great detail what you're doing. And that was critical to that. The other thing is being able to 
not shy away or pull your punches from stating the obvious and what did or didn't happen. Uh, there's always the tension and the, the sort of view of trying to spin something and you're dealing with people who are trying to spin things and push things. It's very much laying out, I think, what the evidence is. You're never going to convince 100% of people. I mean, right? You're never <laughs> going to get to that point. But one of the things that you know I've done and, and I'm doing in the election review and we did in Fast and Furious is watching what's out there in the press, speaking to members of Congress, listening to them. Mostly it's one way. It's listening. What are the issues that are out there? What are the questions the public has? What are the issues that folks have in these areas, particularly the higher profile matters, and making sure we ask the hard questions and put out the facts. And, you know, at some level, it's putting the facts out there. People may have very different views of what they say, but I agree with you. You've got to make sure that, and talk with, the, with our agents and our auditors all the time about this, you must make sure that we've asked everybody every question, including the ones you know and I know are obvious. But I can't tell you how many times it's been that instead of us saying something, it's where's the transcript of what the attorney general said or the FBI director said or said. Let's quote them. We don't have to say that. They said that, right? And how many times are you lying on, you're not your own voice, but what someone else has said, because then it's, an acknowledgement, and it's it's not just you reaching out. So it's very important to do that. The other thing I've learned in the couple times when we've arguably stubbed our toes is, and we have a practice now of doing this regularly, we let, before we post publicly a summary, even though it's anonymized, we let the subject of those findings review our draft report and our summary and provide us with any comments which is different from what we did before, before we wrote the report and it went to the component and then they handled the disciplinary hearing or the proceeding. We did that, for example, in Fast and Furious before, and, and we will do this, we've done this in all reports and we will continue to do it. We show them the portions of the report that relate to them for purposes of avoiding leaks. We don't give them everything, but we give them the portions that relate to them and allow them to comment to us on what we have in there. That has allowed us to sometimes learn actually that we didn't get all the evidence we should have gotten, which you always want to make sure you have, but also allow us to rethink certain um, statements we made because of new information we've gotten. So I think there are a lot of steps to take. I think the most important thing though, frankly, right at the outset is having an office that has credibility. And then obviously hopefully you personally as the, as the person presenting on behalf of your office you know, have that credibility, but to me it's all about people understanding you are in fact independent, you're not there to take sides, and that also is a challenge, particularly in DC in today's world, is making sure that we're stepping into what we should step into and staying out of what is a management slash policy dispute that we don't have a, a role in, and then having a track record of credibility of making sure that you're laying out facts that are indisputable, and fortunately, in DC, and this is why it also becomes a bigger challenge, as government institutions are getting undercut in terms of their credibility, or at least their you know, poll after poll shows that that's occurring, the IG model has remained strong in terms of credibility, and so um, we do at least have that around us. Mm -hmm. 
Well, this has been great. Thank you, Thank you. again. This has been just remarkably instructive and remarkably helpful. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bribery and corruption are a trap. If you witness municipal corruption, report it to DOI at 212-3-NYC-DOI or on our website at nyc.gov slash DOI. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes. To learn more about the Department of Investigation, visit us on the web, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Twitter at DOI News.